This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In the 11th century, veiled Islamic warriors rode out of the Sahara Desert and across the Atlas Mountains and established an empire, firstly in northwest Africa and then in Muslim Spain. These nomadic, tri- these nomadic tribes were the Almoravids, united by their strict interpretation of Islam and their jihad against rival Muslims and then Christians. They also controlled trade across the Sahara and were rich from West African gold. They established Marrakesh, which became the greatest city in the region, and they stopped the Christians overrunning Muslim Spain after the fall of Toledo in 1085, helping postpone by 400 years what Christians called the Reconquista. With me to discuss the Almoravid Empire are Amirike Benison, Professor in the History of Culture uh, in the History of Culture of the Maghreb at the University of Cambridge, Nicola Clark, Lecturer in the History of the Islamic World at Newcastle University, and Hugh Kennedy, Professor of Arabic at SOAS, University of London. Amir Benison, what does Alm Almoravid mean? And is it a place, a people, an idea? What is it? Uh, the word Almoravid uh, actually comes to us from Spanish. It's uh, a name of a, a group. Um, it's um, about people. Uh, it relates to the Arabic root, rubata, which is to tie. And it is a sense of people who are either tied to God in the sense of being particularly committed to a particular religious message. Um, it's a, often attributed in later sources to, uh, to being given to the group at a particular moment of time by their leader, Ibn Yasin, when they had had a particularly bad battle, many had died, and he encouraged them and galvanised them by saying, you are, in Arabic, al-murabitun, the ones who are tied to God, and you know your commitment will be rewarded. Uh, in terms of the people who they were actually were, were, from another perspective, they were predominantly Sanhaja Berbers from the Saharan Desert. So um, when did they... Did they come together of people? Uh, were they people before they started on the, the track to the road to conquest, or were they individual tribes? And how related were they in that, in that in the sense of a cohesive force? The Sanhaja are a tribal people. Many different tribes uh, made up the confederation. They were sometimes hostile to each other. And it is really the religious message preached to them by Ibn Yasin, which gradually unites more and more tribes. However, that process of unification was not simply a matter of persuasion to follow a particular form of Islam, but it also could be coercive in the sense of tribes fighting each other and the defeated party joining the movement. So the Sanhaja are a number of different tribes scattered throughout the Sahara who become gradually united into a single group, the Almoravids, who then go on to create an empire. The Sahara is so big. Uh, Can you give us any idea of the size of the army that then came together? It's very difficult to say for the 11th century. We don't really have any statistics so I would hesitate to put numbers on this um, the sources don't routinely talk about numbers but I, I don't think we're talking we're not talking about massive armies by any means we're not talking about 20,000 people um, in terms of the entire confederation one might be and I suppose the point to make here is that uh, tribesmen are generally not civilians and soldiers there isn't that division everybody is capable 
of fighting. So you can mobilise very large numbers of people if you do need to, but that doesn't mean that for every battle there was a huge number of troops involved. How and when did they acquire their very strict approach to Islam? Their approach to Islam, um, which one might describe as Malikism, um, one of the branches of Sunni Islam, um, was brought to them by a preacher, Ibn Yasin. Um, there are many stories about how Ibn Yasin arrived in the desert, uh, including stories of Sanhaja tribesmen going on pilgrimage, um, meeting scholars in Kairawan. In, yes, going on pilgrimage to Mecca, that's correct. Um, meeting scholars in Kairawan, which was the main city in Tunisia at that time, and becoming aware of their relative ignorance about what it really meant to be Muslim. I think one point to make is that in this era, much of North Africa's population has heard of Islam. They may have nominally converted, but there isn't a deep understanding of what it means to be Muslim. So the arrival of Ibn Yasin teaching these tribesmen is part of a very long process of gradual Islamization of peoples within North Africa. And they adopt this particular form, um, Maliki Sunnism. Nicola, Nicola Clark, what would jihad have meant to the Amoribis? We They brought it back from Mecca, or there's this preacher anyway. They turn out to be, let's call them a sect, that useful, a very tough... Uh, uh, can you tell me more about that? So, I mean, in terms of thinking about jihad, I suppose uh, there's... I guess two two elements to it. One is obviously um, the the sense that we're most familiar with today in terms of fighting, but there's also the sense of struggle, sort of um, internal struggle, moral struggle, and so forth. And I think both of those elements are, are important for the Almoravids. Um, so, as, as Amira says, this this idea of sort of trying to um, educate uh, the 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 Sanhaja Berbers uh, in Islam is very important to Ibn Yasin's kind of to his message. So it's it's partly about sort of an idea of trying to unite this tribe under a particular form of Islam. So it's through some through fighting but also moral reform as well in education. Who was trying who principally was trying to unite them? Uh, when? Can you give us a date now? So we're talking about uh, primarily sort of eleven forties, eleven fifties um, and Sorry, 10, 1040s, 1050s. I do apologise. Um, and so, as you say, uh, Ibn Yazin uh, particularly, and there's this, this idea that, uh, yeah, that they, they required uh, a bit more education, that they didn't know enough about Islam and so forth. And so I think it's also partly, I mean, as Amira says, um, North Africa, particularly the Maghreb, is there's not a huge amount of political formation uh, in this area, uh, things are quite diffuse, um, so it's also about bringing them together under under leadership as well. An idea of um, that that Islam as a community should be a united community. Did they have outward and visible forms of, of, of their faith, like we we learn about in the Middle East at that time, for instance? Um, in the sense of. Um, <coughs> In the mosques sense of mosques and, and things, like, yes. Um, so, I mean, one of the things ultimately the Almoravids uh, go on to do is they spend quite a lot of time, um, put quite a lot of money into building mosques. Um, again, a lot, a lot of, to the extent of settlement in this area um, at the time when, when they're getting started, um, there are there are some cities, but they're mostly sort of trading trading places. And um, one like of the things, and Tangier. yes, yeah. yeah. And so, um, one of the things that the Almoravids are doing very much is building mosques um, as sort of focal points for the for the movement. They got rich through gold. Can you tell us mm -hmm. about that? Um, so, I mean, this is 
again, sort of the gold trade, the trans-Saharan gold trade, particularly um, from uh, mines in West Africa, um, is something that's been very important to the the sort of economy of the region for quite some time. Um, so people, uh, regimes like the Umayyads in Spain have been sort of battling for quite a long time to take control of sort of some of this. And then the Almoravids there, um, particularly um, in the 1070s, uh, the Almoravids, uh, t- it's a little bit hard to say whether it's a conquest or a sort of alliance or something on these lines, but um, take control in particularly um, in the area of Ghana. And then that gives them control of the gold trade from West Africa. And uh, so it gives them that channel. What do they, what do they trade for the gold? Uh, particularly salt, I understand. Um, yeah, so I think I think pati- salt is one of the things. There's also, I mean, their um, grain, I think, as well, is also tra- travelling across the Sahara, but yes. But it's basically, so the, the, the three trades was, I understand it, gold, salt and slaves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was the slave p- part of their trade big? I think, it, I think it's re- not as substantial as it becomes, I, I would say. Um, that, becomes when? Uh, Later, in towards the later medieval period, the, the slave trade becomes becomes rather larger. Um, but the slave trade in this in this region also, I mean, there's also quite a lot of um, there is some trade certainly into Muslim Spain from um, Central Europe and Eastern Europe as well. So it's not just purely across the Trans-Saharan trade that's important. Can we just uh, pin down how rich this gold trade made them? Because as I understand it, this these few well, comparatively, and let's say these try mm-hmm. and ended up controlling currency or or being the currency of the area, which yes. is a remarkable thing to happen. Yeah, so they, um, certainly the gold is being used not just to sort of make jewellery and things like that, but yes, it's also very much for minting coins, and these coins do travel a lot around the Mediterranean and so on. So, yeah, um, they are extremely important, and it, again, is important for Muslim Spain too. So the Almoravids are on the rise, uh, Hugh Kennedy. What's on the decline? Usually there's a companion piece to this, isn't there? Um, the, the the most noticeable decline is in, in Spain, just across the water, of course, easily visible from the North African coast, where the Umayyad Caliphate, which had been in the 10th century the richest and most sophisticated and developed uh, political unit in, in Western Europe, had disintegrated during the course of the 11th century into a lot of little individual kingdoms. Each major town had its own king, its own court, and so on. Inevitably, there were rivalries between them. And this wouldn't have mattered so much, except that the Christian of northern Spain, from Castile and Leon and Aragon, uh, were increasingly militant and increasingly took advantage of uh, the insecurity in, in, in in the Muslim areas. And so at the time of the Almoravids were emerging and developing their power in, in North Africa, Muslim Spain, Al-Andalus as they called it, was in crisis and under threat. Can we stay in North Africa for a little while longer, Hugh? We're going to go across the Straits of Gibraltar quite soon, but not quite yet. Um, how integrated were the Berber people um, um, outside northwest Africa? Uh, what sort of force are we talking about? It's much the same question as I asked Nicola, but maybe you can bring a different aspect to it. The Berbers of North Africa lived in very simple lives in the sense that they, li- that they lived in tribal groups, either as nomads, in particularly in the Sahara, where the Sanhaja come from, or in the mountain areas where they lived tribal lives, but in villages and cultivating things. The, the area was very unurbanized, particularly compared with other areas in the, in, in the Middle East, with just as you, uh, the, the small settlements at uh, Fez and, and Tangier being the only uh, urban communities really in the area. And Islamic learning and Islamic law and so on were very much confined to those small urban areas. The rest of the population, as we've just been hearing, uh, was really quite uh, 
unaware, shall we say, of what orthopraxis, what orthodox Islam was about. So how far could we call them Islamists and how far could we call them people who just rounded up for battle? The two go together. Uh, they join the. Can you can you give us a can you give us a weight from one side to the other? Uh, everybody has their own motives, but basically, people were anxious. For, lots of people were anxious to convert to what they saw as a, a true Islam because of all the benefits you got in this world and the next. It's very important, uh, but also people want to join a successful group. Success breeds success, particularly in a society there where uh, loyalty is very fluid. Uh, where different groups can align and, and, and with other groups and then break away from them and so on. The Almoravids were the real coming people and they attracted anyone who wanted to be part of, well, being modern in, in um, uh, mid-11th century Morocco meant joining the Almoravids. How were they regarded when they, when they moved over, when, when they began to expand? How were they regarded by Arabic people? Because they weren't Arabic, were they? Well, uh, they were not Arabic in the sense they didn't speak Arabic as their primary language, and that's the only definition. But there is this, um, historians make this contrast between, as it were, the sophisticated people of Al-Andalus and, and cities like Fez who are educated in Arab language, literature, and, and living very urban and urbane lives, uh, compared with the uh, rude Berbers who, you know, live rolled up in their blankets underneath their camels. So there's that. And the resentment that we get in some sources, and we can find in some sources, of these sophisticated urbanites against these uh, against these nomads, who are nonetheless very important to protect them from the Christians. But they were regarded rather as barbarians, were they? Am I pushing it? Uh, yes, I think they were, and particularly as they spoke a foreign language, and they were veiled. Everyone talks about the veiling of the men as a very distinctive thing. And that made them kind of threatening when they walked through the street, just like somebody wearing a balaclava might be in a, in a, in, in, in a London street today. They, uh, they inspired um, awe, but also they inspired anxiety. The bail wasn't, I, I think, it wasn't to do with, for holy reasons, it was to keep the sand out of their face. It seems to be an ancient custom for exactly that reason. But um, the veiling of men, of course, is absolutely something that does not go on in most Islamic societies. And it gave rise to people who thought they were, or their enemies accused them of being effeminate, trying to pretend they were women and so on and so forth. And you can imagine that sort of discourse. Amir, Amir Benison, um, we talk, talk about the women without culture, yet they established Marrakesh. That was a piece of level ground, upsprang Marrakesh, one of the great cities then, and continued to be. Yes, they did found Marrakesh. Um, we don't know the exact date, probably sometime between 1062 and 1072. That'll do. <laughs> and um, I, I would also like to point out, though, that uh, they, they do consider towns very important, and one that we haven't mentioned, which we must mention, is Sigil Massa on the northern edge of the desert, which was one of their first conquests and set them on the path to empire. And after capturing Sidil Massa in the northern Sahara and Aldegust in the southern Sahara, they crossed the mountains and then they need to think about having a, an urban base. Across the Atlas Mountains. The Atlas Mountains in um, Morocco today, yes. And once they've crossed those mountains, they, they want to have a new urban base north of the High Atlas. Uh, they settle in the small town of Agmat, which is another trading centre for some time, and then they de 
for various reasons, which may be to do with overcrowding in Agmat or simply a desire to have their own base. Uh, they negotiate with local tribes and get territory to found Marrakesh, which seems in many ways like an early Islamic uh, garrison towns that were established after the Arab conquests of the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, it was quite simple, but it was primarily for the Almoravids themselves and their following. Uh, it was probably made up of sort of domestic compounds for each family and clan, uh, quite dispersed with palm trees and other planting areas for livestock. But it was also, on another level, seen as being in some way royal. The huh. site of the Almoravid royal family and their immediate Sanhaja tribal following. Did they build early on, did they build mosques? and? We know very little about the early history of Marrakesh. It was probably founded by Abu Bakr, one of the very early leaders of the movement. Uh, he returned to the Sahara quite soon after that point and uh, the next phase of building was in the um, under Yusuf ibn Tashfin, who took over control of the movement. He is associated with the building of a great mosque, uh, but it doesn't seem that Marrakesh was particularly urban in the time of Yusuf bin Tashfin. It's really under his son Ali, uh, who is in control not only of North African territories, but also territories in what's now Spain and Portugal, and eventually the Balearic Islands. And by creating that huge empire, there's then a pool of labour and craftsmen who gradually flow down to the city of Marrakesh, which becomes a hugely important hub for the urbanisation of the South. Nicola Clark, why uh, were the Almoravids invited? Because they were invited. The, the, some ideas, they raided Spain. They didn't. They were invited in by the Muslims in Spain. Why did the Muslims want them to come across the Straits of Gibraltar? Uh, so, as Hugh mentioned a little bit earlier on, uh, in Muslim Spain at the time, the, there's, I think it, the situation is uh, tense, uh, and quite vibrant in lots of ways, but also quite unstable. Um, so, at the beginning of the 11th century, the Umayyad Caliphate that's been ruling in that had been ruling in Spain from the 8th century that collapsed and left in its wake a whole kind of profusion of city states. And there, there were around about 30 or so of them at the, at the beginning of the 11th century. And they gradually they spend quite a lot of time essentially just disagreeing with each other and gobbling each other up. Um, particularly, the city of Seville uh, sort of cannibalizes quite a lot of these these city states. Um, but because because they're quite disunited and because, um, as you mentioned, that the the Christian North is is um, starting to push further south. I mean, it, for a while there's, there's this sort of status quo in which uh, pe people, particularly like um, Alfonso VI of um, of Leon Castile, he is, uh, is effectively extracting protection money from from some of these city states, particularly Toledo, um, in return for essentially not attacking them. Um, but then. So, so there, there are certainly there are quite a lot of cross-border campaigns. And so, the, what's happening is that mm, there's a lot of disintegration in yes. northern Spain, and the great civilization of Cordoba is collapsing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and but the most significant event, sorry to interrupt you, is that in 1085, the Christians capitulate. Let's say it's near enough the middle of Spain, and everybody, and the Muslims are frightened that the game's up, and so they need help. 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, because Toledo had been the Visigothic, the Visigothic capital of Spain before the Islamic uh, conquest, so it was a very big kind of symbolic victory for the Christians, and it certainly it, it caused panic among um, among the, the rulers of these city states. So, uh, the ruler of Seville, quite reluctantly, I think, in lots of ways, I think he he realizes that maybe this is not necessarily going to be the best the best option. But he writes to um, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, who Amira mentioned, is at this stage that the ruler, um, the leader of the Almoravids, and says, please, please, please come and help. And so in 1086, uh, Yusuf ibn Tashfin uh, makes his first journey across to Spain. Which is very... Have we any uh, record of what that communication was, why he agreed, and when he agreed, what forces he took there? That's a, that's a compound question, here, but you're <laughs> fully capable of it. In a... <laughs> we don't know originally how the, th- how the communications began, but the distances are very short and people are always yeah. coming across the straits or, uh, from Andalus to North Africa. And... When he seemed, Yusuf ibn Tashfin seems to have intervened somewhat reluctantly originally. He was invited and persuaded, and he came across for short campaigns and then went back to North Africa. It was only in 1092, uh, after a couple of previous interventions and, and a great victory over the Castilians, that he finally decided there was no hope for the Muslim powers. They weren't going to get their act together. They needed a permanent Almoravid presence to... Mm protect them from the... We can't hop over the great victory over the Castilians. That was quite something, wasn't it? It was King Alfonso. They took, they went on the battlefield with him and they won. And they won. And the Almoravids, um, like lots of uh, desert peoples, were highly mobile, very used to hardship and very used to manoeuvring uh, together in groups, were very effective in field battles. They were much less effective than in the new style warfare that was coming in particularly... But at the time, let's go one thing at a time. The first big battle and against the King of Castile, which mattered, yeah. they fought, they won. That yes. must have meant something. Yes. 1086 at Zalaka. Um, and a year after the fall of Toledo. A year after the fall of Toledo. And it was a big defeat for Alfonso VI of Castile, who was a leading Christian monarch at the time, and uh, a severe setback for his... He was really on the verge of as you were saying, gobbling up Muslim Spain, basically. And that put an end to it for a while. Yes. And was it this that this victory that persuaded the Almoravids that they could go over in bigger force with greater determination and take over? Yes. Well, they had, not that they could, but also that they had to. Why did they, they have were, to? Because they were the only people who had a viable military force that could stand up to the Christian uh, armies. So they won that battle, Amira. Uh, what happened next? Um, what, and what did the Spanish Muslims think of these people coming in from the sand dunes? Very romantically for me, I think, from the sand dunes of the Sahara with their... What did they think of these people? Yes. Well, I, yes, I don't think the Muslims of the Iberian Peninsula saw it quite so romantically, but I think we, we, we should point out that there is a division in Andalusi society. The juridical establishment, the, the jurists really do support the Almoravids quite strongly. They like their form of Islam. They think they are more pious and devoted to the cause than the the Ta'ifa rulers, the, the, the petty princes of the peninsula. So whilst there's a reluctance among um, rulers in Al-Andalus to invite the Almoravids in, there's a lot of support at grassroots level for them coming into the peninsula, for them holding the line very strongly against the Christian kings of the north who are coming down south who are come who are pushing south so initially i think there's quite a lot of optimism 
and enthusiasm. And in, in most parts of the peninsula, say, for instance, Granada, you have a sort of a, a split in the Granadan community between those who are welcoming the Almoravids with banners and cheers and parades and the rulers themselves who are having to pack their bags and are being sent into exile in North Africa. However, that kind of honeymoon period does begin to sour quite quickly for some of the reasons we've mentioned before, that these people do seem very alien, very strange, very different to the Andalusis, and they're prepared to tolerate them as long as they're militarily successful. And secondly, and quite importantly, as long as they don't tax them too hard. Because another issue here right from the outset was the level of taxation in the Iberian Peninsula and the the petty kings were taxing people very heavily to try and pay tribute to the Christian kings. So the Almoravids come in on a platform of low taxes as well as um, effective military defence of the frontier. And But they're mutually exclusive. You actually have to raise a lot of money to hold the frontier. So the Almoravids start to impose taxes and it's at that point that people begin to become unhappy. And then when that's combined with some military defeats, the whole thing begins to go sour and the population begins to react against the Almoravids. Can we defer the defeats for a moment or two and go back to you, Nicola, and talk about El Cid, uh, uh, who is a certain amount of obscurity, but a certain amount of clarity, a a knight, um, Christian, but he fought fought Christians as well as Muslims, great hero and he became a legend and there's a great poem about him which is a huge reference for persons like yourself. Can you give us the whole truth about <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we don't really have time for the whole truth I think. Yeah, but, we um, time for everything. Just but but c- certainly uh, so yes, as you mentioned there's, there's the poem which is uh, <coughs> written sort of cons- a considerable while after El Cid's career and talks very much about him as you say as a sort of great Christian hero uh, who despite the fact that his king Alfonso VI is, it treats him rather badly, he emerged as very much this sort of this noble figure who's vindicated over the course of the poem, who's good to his followers, including some Muslim followers. There's lots of cheering villages around every time El Cid comes past and so forth. Um, some of the earlier sources, both the Arabic sources and um, a, a Latin biography of him, sort of complicate that picture a little bit more uh, and particularly t- talk a lot more about the fact that um, he's he's perhaps a little bit more of a mercenary figure than we might we might expect from that image. That he um, at various times he's in exile from Castile. He works for amongst other things the rulers of uh, Tharagotha, uh, for the Muslim rulers of Tharagotha, and he raids Christian territory repeatedly, particularly in Aragon. Um, and so so he is a rather more complex figure. And how did he become a Christian hero and legend in Spanish literature then? I think, I mean, one of the things is that he does inflict, uh, to, to go to the defeats of the Almoravids, he does inflict very significant defeat on the Almoravids in uh, 1094, uh, and uh, he takes over the city of uh, Valencia. I mean, again, there's quite a lot of back and forth and skullduggery going on there, and it's a rather more complicated picture than it might appear. But I think, yeah, that, that sort of, that sense of him as resisting the Almoravids and being able to inflict a defeat upon the Almoravids, which has not generally been uh, the case, as Hugh mentioned, there's, uh, they, they've been a very significant, very... Um, very big force against the Christians until that point that I think I think that helps uh, quite a bit but so, some of it is also I think uh, just as the crusade period goes on and the Reconquista period goes on um, people are looking for perhaps for heroes and so El Cid gets, gets slightly reimagined I think in lots of ways. It's enrolled as an inspirational mm-hmm, figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hugh um, um, can you give us some idea then the Almovers are there they won a great battle they're raising taxes, as Amiri said. People don't like that. They never do. That's all right. Um, um, 
What's happening? Are they settling in? Are they really ruling? Are they in palaces? Are they making the laws? Are they running stuff? Uh, they're certainly living in palaces and they are an elite and they're an uh, interrelated elite and slightly exclusive elite. It was difficult for... You mean they're still with their old tribes back in the Sahara? Uh, yes, but they're also with their cousins in the neighbouring cities in, in, in Spain. They're, they're yeah. a self-contained elite. <clears throat> they're very different from what you were talking about, uh, what Emira was talking about, the legal elite, which is important in terms of public opinion and so on, who are almost entirely Andalusis. That's Arabic-speaking uh, natives. But the military establishment, the political establishment, was really, what should I say, it, it, it was corralled by a small group of Almoravid families who'd done very well out of it. And as time goes on, and as they become militarily less effective against the Christians, more resentment builds up against these foreigners. Was what was happening there uh, markedly different from what was happening in other parts of let's call the Islamic other parts of Islamic influence well there is a, an interesting parallel in terms of the Turkish Seljuk invasion of the Middle East in the, in, in the 1050s onwards and the way again and another really desert steppeland people come in from the east to the to the developed urban lands of, of, of the Middle East and they established themselves as rulers over a, a series of generations. But like the Almoravids, they co-opted the bureaucrats and the literary class of and the, the, the legal scholars of the Middle East to support their uh, nomad rule, basically, or their, their Turkish rule. So the Almoravids in, in, in Spain particularly and, and do the same thing, that they co-opt existing elites to support them, but they careful, both Seljuks and in the East, and uh, Almoravs in the West, are careful to keep the real political power in the hands of the families who originally... You've been rushing to talk about your decline, all of you, but they were there for quite a long time. I mean, they, they, were, in, in, they were in control for upwards of a century, or near, near enough. Um, the historian Ibn Khaldun, is that how you pronounce it, uh, wrote about the Almoravids, about their rise to power, and he saw that part of a cycle. What did you mean by that? Well, Ibn Khaldun's theory, and he used the Almoravids and their successors, the Almohads, amongst other dynasties to generate his theory. So he was looking at the history of this period when he generated the theory. And he felt that empires are generally built by tribal peoples who have the military qualities and capabilities once they're united by some kind of a religious program which enables them to get over internal feuds of various kinds but that to have an empire you need to capture cities so this tribal group will go out and capture cities create an empire he then argued though that once you settle in a city that the tribal group sort of lifestyle becomes somewhat diluted by living in that city they, they, they sort of begin to relax a bit they begin to like nice meals and nice clothes and become less fervent uh, and that as a result sort of over three generations they will probably lose that kind of impetus and dynamism that they had at the start and they are likely then to be overthrown by a new tribal people from the periphery who have fresh impetus and dynamism and a new religious message can I pick up a stitch with you, Hugh, when mm -hmm. you're talking about their decline because they were wonderful at open field battles, but then things moved on. Where'd they move on to and why weren't they wonderful at that as well? Well, if they were going to secure the future of uh, the Muslim communities in Spain and Andalus, they had to retake particularly Toledo, 
which is a big fortified city, and Almoravid military technology was simply not up to that in terms of, because in order to arrange a siege, you have to have the, the, the siege equipment, you have to have a regular supply chain to keep the, the, the people uh, fed. And increasingly, they began to recruit, ironically, Christian soldiers or soldiers of Christian origin. And not only in Spain did they employ them, because these people would do anything for good salaries and the prospect of booty, but they even employed them in Marrakesh to defend them from their Moroccan enemies. And so you get a community of Christian soldiers in Marrakesh with their own church and their own priests in the heartlands of this supposedly purely Islamic empire. Waging waging jihad against them. Yes. (laughs) And I think this really, this really was really challenging for lots of the population. Here are these Muslim, I say these, these champions of Islam, actually dependent for a lot of their uh, survival on a group of Christian mercenaries, mostly Catalans from Barcelona. And, and Nicola, there was another people on the horizon threatening the Almoravids, the Almohads. Who were they? So the Almohads are, uh, they, well, they get their start, their, their sort of founding figure, Muhammad ibn Tumat, uh, he's in Masmuda Berber, uh, and so from the uh, the Atlas Mountains. And he initially is, I mean, he, he's educated partly in the Almoravid lands, he also travels further east, uh, but he has... In contrast to the Almoravids, who have this uh, this very um, legalistic, this this Maliki uh, form of Sunni Islam, uh, he has much more of a kind of he develops much more of a kind of hybrid sort of theology. Uh, so their their name, uh, the Almohads, this is a, a version of uh, the Arabic term Wahidun, which means uh, the sort of believers in the oneness of God, the the unity of God. Um, and he he presents himself at various times as as a sort of as the Mahdi, as a sort of Messiah figure. Um, and he he very much again. He's he's very committed to this idea of very personally going around and um, commanding the right and forbidding the wrong, as the term goes. So he goes around and personally tells people off for doing things wrong. So he he supposedly um, sort of frightens the uh, an Almoravid governor's sister um, on her horse because she's riding around without a veil. Um, he smashes instruments. He smashes wine cups. All this sort of thing. So he he's basically making himself very irritating to people, and eventually um, in, in in a sort of uh, ends up being kicked out of um, Marrakesh and ends up sort of retreating to to a, um, a, a sort of military monastery type thing in the mountains. Uh, gradually, sort of builds up a following th- um, through preaching along those lines, and eventually comes to to combat the Almoravids more directly. So presumably, these are the other people from the periphery that you refer to who are yeah. coming in when they, uh, uh, yeah. How good were they? I mean, obviously good enough to, to begin to drive. Because you can have a good time now. You can talk about the decline. <laughs> and, uh, they, bear, we, they came in in the middle of the 11th century. We're now 10th, middle of the 11th century. We're in the 12th century now, and we're headed and in, 30, in a few decades of decline. Now, you're, you're in your element now. What happened? <laughs> How did this happen? Uh, the decline, expert on decline, yes. <laughs> the, um, uh, the problem for the Almoravids was that they lost control of Morocco. Um, they lost control of the Moroccan heartlands and the contrast that uh, you were just bringing up between the mountain peoples of the Masmuda Berbers of the mountains and the, the, the peoples of the plains of the desert and it's the people of the mountains who support the, Almor- uh, the Almohads uh, and they attack Marrakesh so they go for the centre of the Almoravid Empire. How, how distinct are the people of the mountains who are also nomads from the people of the desert? 
they belonged to different tribes. They probably spoke a different dialect. They were immediately recognisable as different people. And they had completely different lifestyles. They lived in little mountain villages with terraced fields and so on. Um, they were very much bound in a tribal society. Uh, but they were, there's always perhaps historically since the beginning of time, this, this rivalry between nomad peoples and village peoples. And perhaps that's one of the things that, that were played out in the, the triumph of the Almohads over the Almoravids. You look as if you want to come in. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I just wanted to say, since, you know, you were mentioning that we seem to be going towards the decline moment, that, of course, in part of the resistance that the Almoravids face in North Africa and in Al-Andalus is because they're effective. They established the first provincial administration within North Africa. They're probably the first regime to actually tax these North African tribes. So you you can argue that part of the resistance of the Masmuda in the mountains is because the first time they are feeling the hand of an outside government upon them and they begin to resent that and resist it. So in a sense, they're victims of their success rather than this just simply being a decline. They're often written up as culturally uh, ignorant and absent, as it were, Hugh. Is Is that true? Uh, not entirely, but in, compared with the uh, Almohad successors, we don't hear of Almoravids, for example, establishing libraries, um, patronising intellectuals and so on. Uh, they certainly supported the, the, the jurists and so on, but we can't really point to any great intellectual achievements that we owe to the uh, Almoravid regime. They built buildings, some of which survive. Uh, so, no, um, They were against it, alcohol? They were against alcohol. And they were against poetry? Uh, not enthusiastic. Well, you're shaking well, your head, but yeah, one of you yeah. in your paper said that they were against poetry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and they weren't against poetry, so they were not against uh, poetry. Everyone liked poetry as long as the poets said good things about them, basically. Oh, right, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, whether it went much beyond that is, is difficult to tell. But they have a reputation probably justified for not being that interested in, 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 in culture in the way that their successors and in the way that the Umayyads had been before them. When the Almohads came in, did they take over the role of, of holding back the Christians in Spain? Yes, they did. Because they held them back for a few hundred years, didn't they? They did, and in a sense, they enter the Iberian Peninsula first and foremost to combat the Almoravids, but also to hold the frontier and prevent further Christian advances. And they, the Almohads do have notable military successes, uh, just as the Almoravids had before them. So that is an important part of what the the Almohads do. Um, but to, to go back to the culture point for a moment, if I may, very briefly, um, I, I do think it's also the, partly the fact that they don't have much time to develop, to develop their cultural patronage. And we do know that in the second, third generation, we have women poetesses in Seville holding literary gatherings so one could argue that if the Almoravids had had more time they would have become great patrons of culture and learning it's not that they were definitely opposed to that it was simply a matter of time in my view. Is there any one thing that can say drove them out you keep talking about not more time that's a very good point so what what pushed them out in the end we've talked about having to hire Christians because of the lack of experience in siege warfare and so on was there anything else? I think that was the fundamental um, Moravid contract with the people of Al-Andalus was, and the people of North Africa, was that they would protect them against their enemies in exchange for political submission. The Al-Moravids increasingly couldn't deliver on the first part of that contract. 
they couldn't defeat the, the Christians. There was one spectacular example in 1125-6 when the king of Aragon has a real rampage all the way through the heartlands of Al-Andalus, pillaging, capturing prisoners, destroying her, and the Almoravid administration can't stop him. It was obvious to everybody that they weren't fulfilling their part of the contract. Nicola Clark, would anybody have mourned the replacement of the Almoravids by the um, Almohads? I think really by that stage, I mean, as he say, says, that if they're not doing the thing they're supposed to be doing, then by and large, no. I think the only the only point I would make, and possibly this is something I would pass back to Amira at this point, is that possibly for elite women um, that the Almohads represent a slightly um, worse situation in some respects compared to under the, the Sanhaja. Yes, I mean, it's one of the features of the Almoravids. Uh, the men wear veils, but the women often don't so uh it's a very it, it's an era where women have a lot of political and cultural autonomy which is important to them so um can we talk about the legacy can we begin with you Hugh, and go around well, the, the, the legacy is overwhelmingly the islamization of morocco the fact that and also that morocco becomes part of the wider islamic world during this period. The Almoravids write letters, send embassies to the Abbasid Caliphs in Baghdad. They've integrated into the wider Islamic world and I think that's a major long-term achievement. And I would say also the foundation of Marrakesh and the development of a major urban hub, uh, a place of learning, culture, law in the south of Morocco is also very important. Can you tell us how tolerant the Almoravids were of Jews and Christians? Um, somewhat less so than uh, some of their predecessors were, certainly. I mean, one of, one of the things that the Almoravids said when they arrived was that part of the reason they had to uh, eventually sweep away the the, uh, the, the city-states, these party kings, so-called, um, was that they um, tended to employ uh, Jewish viziers and so on, so particularly in Granada, most obviously, but but not just in Granada. Um, so they, I think, again, as part of their sort of display of piety and of, of correct uh, adherence to Islamic law, they were very keen to kind of uh, enforce uh, things like collection of the poll tax and um, or restrictions on, on Christians and Jews. And that's a big difference from the Hanging Gardens of Cordoba. Yes. In which way? Yes. Though the yes, the, the Umayyads were supposed to be tolerant in the tenth century is a time of tolerance and convivencia. The eleventh and twelfth century is a time when religious divisions become very stark and strong and violent. It, like all historical generalizations, it has to be modified in various ways. But fundamentally, that's, that's where we are. Well, thank you for the ending with a fundamental statement. <laughs> thanks, thanks to you, Hugh Kennedy, and Amira Benison, and Nicola Clark. Next week, we'll be discussing medieval Welsh stories of the Maninogian. Mabinogian. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So, what did we miss out? Anything that was important we missed out? I really wanted to talk about Ibn Bulagin. Um, oh, yes. Because, uh, so this is the, the ruler of Granada at the time when the Almoravids arrived. Uh, he wrote a memoir uh, after he was deposed, and he's, I, I kind of envisage him sort of herding goats in North Africa being very sad. Yeah. Um, but he, he writes, writes this memoir. It's a terrifically kind of self justifying uh, book all about his family and huh. how hard he worked and how difficult it was. Nobody understands how difficult it was to be the ruler of a city state in, at this time and how eager he was when, when the Almoravids arrived and he was so happy to work with Yusuf Ibn Tashfin uh, 
and then he gets exiled. And so it's it's it's, it's a really interesting insight it that is, you don't tend is. to get from this period of of what his thought processes were. I mean, obviously he is he is presenting himself, uh, uh, sort of trying to make the best possible case for himself. But he's talking quite a lot about his doubts, um, his his hopes, yeah. uh, all these sorts of things. It's yes. such an interesting yes, book. Yes, it's, it's a wonderful book, and it's autobiography of a failure, which mm. is you know so often autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> but there is no we getting can all away identify from the fact with that. that. Was, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's no getting away from the fact that he was a failure. But 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 Nicholas absolutely absolutely right. It's it, it's a very insightful book of the sort you don't get very much in medieval sources. Mm-hmm. Sort of. but, but it, and it is one of the sources as well that gives us uh, much more information about the the degree of support for the Almoravids from yeah. other parts of mm-hmm. yes, exactly. the community. Yeah. So yeah. you know, like in addition to justifying himself, it, it is one of the sources that tells us about that popular support um i suppose from my point of view one of the things is just to always remember that i mean we always tend to drag things back to al-andalus yes and i think it's so important to remember that for the almoravids it wasn't their key area of operations you know we may think of the sahara as well it's just an empty space but for them it was their home (laughs) you know they considered the west african part of their empire and the desert very very important so Marrakesh is very central to them. But as you start going further north, it's not so important. So although there's more sources for Al-Andalus and more interest in that as an area of study, it's really important to always remember that for them, it's the south that's more important. Yes, perhaps we, yes, perhaps the Andalus. But it always takes over somehow. <laughs> yes. Did they just fiddle away? Uh, fizzle away, sorry. Did they in, just fizzle away? In the away? south? Yeah. We don't really know what happened, but they seem to be instrumental in the Islamization of the South, whether it is by kind of uh, a conquest uh, or a more relaxed set of interactions with the Soninke in Ghana. But it's a key moment in the Islamization of West Africa, mm-hmm. and they do secure access to the gold. So whatever happens in the South, clearly they do throughout their period as rulers have access to the gold. And one of the uh, very interesting things is how significantly the level of gold coinage drops in the succeeding Almohad empire. I mean, the Almohads are hugely successful, but they do not control the desert. They do not control the the gold trade in the way the Almoravids do. Uh, And most of their currency is silver. So it's the Almoravids who have the gold currency in massive quantities, which becomes the gold standard throughout the Mediterranean of their day. So they're very successful in that respect, whatever's going on in Al-Andalus, which is their northern provincial frontier in a way. So what we really need is an Almohad programme. Yes, we do. <laughs> we, ne- we nearly had one. The, the, you wanted to get there faster than any of the rest of us. The, 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 did their skills, which you spoke, we spoke about at the beginning of the programme, their skills as horsemen and their skills in open field battle, did they, they kind of become entirely redundant just because... Oh, no, the, no, no, they're not entirely redundant. In certain circumstances, they're, they're extremely effective. And, and nomad peoples have the advantage of mobility. They don't require... They're used to living on the hoof, literally. Um, they don't require baggage trains and supply organisations and things or like that. Or stuff like and that. they don't mind sleeping rough and... Their animals don't mind sleeping rough and so on. Yeah. And so that at certain levels... But did level, they go on to conquer other things after they'd been pushed out of Spain? Other places, no. No, but they, they do continue well, Sahara's to... Well, big enough to have, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, they, give the, they continue to give the Almohads a lot of grief 
for decades from the Balearics, from Menorca and Majorca. The Almoravids hold on there much longer than they do anywhere else. What's what's the nature of the grief? Uh, Well, they basically a guerrilla war. So from about the 1184, Almoravids from the Balearics invade North Africa and rampage for decades throughout North Africa, giving um, the Almohads tremendous trouble. And the Almohads can't defeat them but the Almoravids can't actually gain land. So it is guerrilla war. It's like rampaging through the countryside, hitting a town or a village, sacking something. Yeah, but they, they cause a great deal of trouble for a very long time. I mean, I think on the siege warfare thing, I think we have to be fair in the sense that Toledo didn't fall because of good siege warfare. It fell because of tricky, murky negotiations, yeah, somebody yes, opening yes, a back it, gate. So yes, when it comes to siege warfare, actually very few regimes were able to actually, you know, knock down the walls of a fortified town. It's almost always to do with someone <laughs> opening a back gate <laughs> and <laughs> food running out. But what I, So what I would say is it's more... I mean, they, they don't have the techniques, that's absolutely true, but it's also they don't have the manpower because yeah. if they could have encircled these towns for long enough and cut off the food for long enough, they would probably have capitulated, but they can't quite do, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. that's an important I mean, that's point. Ultimately, that's what Elsa does in Valencia, right? He starves, yeah. starves the city starves out. It. It's about starving yeah. places until they give in, not really about bashing down their gates or walls. I mean, the exception, I suppose, in terms of nomadic conquerors that do manage to... to sort of take care of siege warfare is the Mongols I've just been teaching about last week and um, the the main reason that they succeed is because they just they identify what they need and take it so in that case they they find Chinese siege engineers and force them to become part of their army and then they're able to use them then to conquer cities and they're still in they're still in those armies when they are conquering Baghdad in the mid mid 13th century and so on so the the, the Mongols are just extremely adaptable whereas um, the Almoravids as you say they they use Christian mercenaries but perhaps not not to quite the same extent and doesn't it doesn't become part of their practice in the same sort of way. Well, here's the cavalry coming in with, tea, with, with an opera. Simon? Who'd like tea and you'd like coffee? <laughs> you uh, I'll have a coffee, please. Yeah, in Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Who was she? What is she doing here? A major new podcast series. I noticed her. Was she a spy? Death in Ice Valley. All these identities? A woman's unidentified body. It was like a cover-up. A 47-year-old mystery. Our investigation. Search for Death in Ice Valley wherever you find your podcasts.